I'm Mel Kettle, and you're listening to This Connected Life, the show where connected leaders share their experience, values, and strategies that have helped them become more connectable so they achieve success in life and business. My guest today is Danny Vallant. Danny is one of Australia's most prominent and respected food journalists, and for over 10 years, she's been a restaurant critic for the Sunday Age, and her feature articles have profiled many of the world's best chefs, including Heston Blumenthal, Curtis Stone, and my favourite, Yotam Ottolenghi. Thanks so much, Danny, for joining us today. Welcome, welcome. Oh, Mel, it's so great to be here with you. Thank you for having me. What I didn't add is that I think we've been friends for maybe close to that same 10 years. I reckon so. We met on Twitter, didn't we? Yeah, we did. We did. And I've been on Twitter for over 10 years and you were definitely one of the earlier people who I met. Yeah, it's um, a great way to connect and lovely to have that connection forge on into real life and podcast land and all kinds of I have met so many amazing people through Twitter over the years. It just blows my mind when I think back as to how different and how much emptier my life could be if it hadn't been for that amazing little piece of cleverness. That's so cool. That's good yeah, to it is, isn't it? That. Yeah. Um, the other thing I didn't mention is that Danny really knows how to eat. And when you go out for dinner with her, you need to be prepared to have a lot of food, <laughs> which, is, which I'm very happy with because I love to eat too. That's so funny. I think uh, when people hear that I'm a restaurant critic, they just think, oh, my goodness, best job in the world. Wow, how do I get to do that? And, you know, it is such a great job and I certainly never bother complaining about it because the sympathy is non-existent. But one thing that people don't think about, about, you know, being a restaurant critic is that you actually really have to eat. You've got to pack it in there because you've got to try a lot of stuff. So if I really think, what is my unique skill? Sometimes I think I can eat a lot. and not gain weight which is really frustrating for me because I just have to look at food and hello five kilos (laughs) oh look it's always an issue and I think every food writer has to deal with it in their own way so yeah I run um and when I say run I mean slightly faster than walking but um but anyway we can get on to that because it's definitely part of my daily needs is that moving the body kind of stuff so I think it all sort of plays in Yeah, I think you're right. Now, my first question that I love to ask, because I love to learn this about people, is what does connection mean to you? Well, first of all, I love that this is what you ask, because connection is is really everything to me and feeds into everything that I do. Everything I do is built around it. And, you know, I love writing about food and I love writing about people. And the reason is that food is such a brilliant way to connect with people. But if I step back from my professional life, I think that connection is it's an opportunity for change it's a way in so it's a way that you can change little things so the course of someone's day I don't know you see someone at the traffic light and you say wow I love your skirt so when I say at the traffic light that sounds like I'm yelling from a car but what I mean is that we're standing at the pedestrian crossing if you've got that image in your mind I'm not <laughs> shouting out compliments from my car as a general rule so it's probably changing well maybe I should start it it's changing little things but it might be changing big things you know a life trajectory and that might be as simple as listening to someone's story, which is what I'm privileged to do as a journalist, where you get that opening up, you get that space for new possibilities and the power of listening to somebody, acknowledging them and then sharing their stories, a real privilege of the connection that I'm offered 
as a journalist and I think as a listener in life because I, I do try to be a good listener. I wrote a story recently about a chef who'd had a very difficult upbringing. He was a, a young gay man in Turkey and things were very difficult in his family and I just try to take the story gently in my hands like it's fine porcelain and just show it gently to the light and then try to pass it on without breaking it. You know, in that way, what I try to do is make those connections and create the space for connection, but then to really honour those connections. And I think that's a way that it's enriching for the people who experienced that connection in the first place. So myself and my interview subject, and I know the feedback I've had from him was very warm and grateful. And maybe we can pop a link to the story, Mel. Oh, most definitely. I've made a note to get that from you. Thank you. Yeah, great. But then it's also about creating connections with the people who read that story. So for example, the chef shared with me a message he'd received from another young chef who had a similar situation he was struggling with, and that chef was in Denmark. And you just think, wow, that's cool. Me sitting in a room in Melbourne, listening to someone's story, taking that story to another room and then writing it, sending it off to someone else in another room who publishes it on the internet and then it makes its way over to someone in Denmark who can then loop back and connect with the person who the story was about. And you just think that's really cool. That's connection that's very human. It's very, you know, it's ancient. It's at the heart of who we are as beings. But there's also some really good things about technology that allow those stories to be, you know, disseminated, shared and looped back, like to close that circle. Yeah. I just find that an immense privilege and connection to me it's like it's that great web it, it supports us it lures us it hugs us and it wraps us up into belonging and that's when I feel enriched and feel like I'm making a difference. I love the description that you've just used that says it hugs us up and wraps us up in belonging because that to me is what connection is as well but also that to me is what food is. And we'll talk about this and how you became to be a writer, an eater, a traveler and a cook, as your bio says, but food is just so integral in our lives. And in our family, love was often shown through food. And so that warm hug was a bowl of my mother's spaghetti bolognese or the roast pork with all the trimmings that she'd cook me when I came home from uni or a steak and kidney pie, which my father loved. And Every time she made it, it was just such a reflection of her love for him because she hated cooking with red meat and she loathed everything about kidneys. So, <laughs> yeah, I love those descriptions that you've given. Well, I mean, you've proven the point that food is a way of connecting because as you talk about those experiences in your family, I learned so much about you and the way you were brought up and about the relationships around you. And, you know, I love that about food is that it's instantly a way to the heart of things. It's a cliche to say that everybody eats. Of course we all do. But I think the way we eat and what food is meant to us at different times in our life is so telling and so big. It's such a big part of who we are. And sometimes that's in beautiful and enriching ways. And sometimes that's in times of struggle and hardship. So it's complex. It's got everything in it. It's a way of connecting to what's happening now. It's a way of connecting to the past. It's a way of connecting across cultural boundaries, generational boundaries, language boundaries. It's a real way of just leaping. It really is. And when I was in my 20s, I briefly dated a guy who just thought of food as fuel. And I thought, oh, we don't have a future because I can't <laughs> be with a man who doesn't share that passion. And it 
was so interesting to me because it was the first time I'd really met someone who didn't have that shared passion for food that I have. And everything you've said, the culture, the history, the way that you use it to show love, because his upbringing was completely different in the relationship that he was taught to have about it. It was just something that you had to do three times a day. Three times a day you had to eat, so you had the energy to do whatever it was you wanted to do. And I found that incredibly sad. Well, I mean, that's telling as well, isn't it? So I suppose the relationships with food can sometimes be ones of of shutting out or closing off, and I think that's telling as well. Mm -hmm. But definitely I find it definitely more fun to hang out with people who love food. It's a great way to travel. You know, it's a great way to explore. It's a great excuse for gathering, all kinds of gatherings. And I just find it endlessly fun, and I love learning. I'm always curious, and with food, you know, there are endless opportunities for learning. I learn new stuff every day and that's one of the things I treasure most about what I do. I travel a lot and I love travelling on my own because it gives you more food opportunities than I think you often have when you travel with someone. And what I mean by that is there have been countless times where I've been in a restaurant or sitting up at the bar having a meal on my own and people come to you and have a conversation with you. And a lot of the time when you express your your love of food, people will offer to share the food that they're eating as well. And so many times I've been in a restaurant or a cafe or in a bar and said to the person next to me, "That what's that you're eating? It looks really interesting. And they've offered me a taste. And That's so great. You don't get that. that when you're with somebody. No, you certainly don't. I've never had that when I've been with somebody. Whereas when I'm on my own, People then starts the conversation of who are you with? What are you here for? Why are you by yourself? Oh, you're from Australia. Oh, you're from Brisbane. Let's talk about that. And it, it starts a conversation and I love everything about that. Yeah, well, it's it's another way that food helps us connect. And it's great that you're open to that because I know a lot of people just order takeaway in the hotel room if they're traveling alone. But I, like you, uh, do love to get out and eat. My only sadness about traveling alone is that I can't eat as much. <laughs> but I need to get more of your advice where it's like the, the people coming over and offering me taste of their food. This is why we're friends because every time I'm (laughs) sitting in a bar or a restaurant somewhere on my own, I always say to the waiter, what can I order to get the most bang for my buck? Bearing in mind, I don't want food waste and I need to eat it all. (laughs) Yeah, perfect. The biggest problem of traveling on my own is that I can't order as many things as I'd like to taste. And that's why when there's somebody who's willing to share who you don't know, it gives you opportunity to taste more things and that's what I love. Yeah, it's good. Maybe there needs to be a Tinder for that sort of relationship. that would be great. (laughs) Taster. Or there needs to maybe be a table in a restaurant or in North America um, I find when I go out on my own there, they put you at the bar and when you're at the bar it's kind of code for you're on your own, If you don't have a book or if you're not obviously doing something, then people willingly and happily talk to you with no expectation and none of the creepiness that you sometimes get in Australia when you're at the bar by yourself. It's a really different environment to what I find often in Australia. And the number of bartenders in the US and in a few other places I've been who are just happy to have a chat, happy to introduce you to other people at the bar who might be a regular. I've never had that happen to me here. Yeah, that is a really nice part of American culture. It is. And I went to um, Paulie's Pizza Place in Brooklyn in New York a couple of years ago and it was a two and a half hour wait for a table. 
But because I was on my own, I got seated at the bar immediately. And I sit down and the bartender says, can I get you a drink? I said, yes, I'll have a, a beer or whatever I was drinking. And, and he said, here's the menu. And I said, thanks, I'm starving. And the man next to me passed his pizza over to me and said, I'm pretty full. You're welcome to have a piece of mine while you wait for yours. Oh, that is <laughs> so I'm nice. Like, I, I love, love you. <laughs> you know, you're just going to have a great night, hey? Like, that's good. Greeted Fantastic. with pizza. And then I had party. a 20-minute conversation yeah. with Paulie, who's the owner, Paulie G. Ah, oh, cool. He's a food icon in America, which I didn't realise until afterwards. And he was just, he's like, what will it take for me to get you back here? And I said, you could open a place in Australia. And he said, it'd be cheaper for me to pay for your flight to come back. I'm like, deal. I'm happy for that. (laughs) (laughs) But so welcoming and so apparent to me why his restaurant was voted the top pizza place in New York the year I was there and why it's consistently on one of the best restaurant lists in New York. And it's just casual dining, pizza, couple of other Italian dishes, but nothing fancy. But two to two and a half hour wait to get in at six o'clock on a Thursday evening just shows that they've got the connection right. He knows what he's doing. They know how to treat people well. They know how to make every one of their customers feel loved, appreciated and valued. The art of hospitality is something that I never fail to admire when you see it done well. It's beautiful. And there's a really fantastic book about that by um, Danny Meyer. It's called Setting the Table. Danny Meyer owns Union Square Cafe and a bunch of other restaurants. He also owns Shake Shack. Yeah, he started Shake Shack. And his, have you ever read his book? No, I haven't. You would love it. It's about hospitality. It goes into the particularities of restaurants, but it's a brilliant book about business and about commitment and about people, about culture. It's a really, really good read, very inspiring. So when I was reading up about Paulie G's after I went, one of the reviews or one of the articles I read said, you know, it's great when Danny Meyer's happy to wait for two and a half hours for a table because he he eats there. That's good. Yeah, I thought that's a good sign. I chose well. (laughs) Definitely. It's amazing. I wouldn't think you'd wait two hours for anything. Oh, it's a sign of respect. Totally. Not only for the owner and the chef, but also for the other customers. 100%. It's a sign of saying, I'm just one of you in this place right now. I'm a hungry person who wants good pizza and I'm not going to use my name or my status to push my way forward in the line. Yeah, it's it's that whole thing of everyone's a VIP and that's what the best restaurants do is that they make everybody feel very important and like a person. So, yeah, I think that's great. Exactly. Did you read Ruth Reichel's book, Garlic and Sapphires? Yeah, I love Ruth Reichel. Oh, so, yeah. Loved that Restaurant book. critic for the New York Times through the 80s, yeah. maybe the 70s, and famous for going to restaurants in disguise. I've never had the budget to do that, nor have I had the budget to go back to restaurants, you know, four or five times like she did. But, yeah, she's a brilliant writer and a lovely thinker about food and about restaurants. So, definitely... And it's a different time now as well. It's a different time. The media. Yeah, the media landscape is completely yeah. different and anonymity is really not what it was, uh, yeah, which is, you know, has pros and cons. Uh, so, yeah, it's definitely a different landscape, mm. not least in, in terms of journalistic budgets. Yeah, exactly. The other thing I wanted to talk to you about, part of what you do is you run cooking classes and you 
strive really hard to educate people about how it doesn't need to be difficult to put a healthy and wholesome meal on the table. Now, one of the things that I've noticed when I've watched you present a few times is that your audiences absolutely love you. The the comments that I heard the last time I saw you speak with our mutual friends, Joe and Fleur, were that Danny is incredible at this. How do you get to be that comfortable on stage? And what advice do you have for other people who want to instill that love of whatever it is that they do in other people? Well, first of all, thank you for passing that on. That's really nice to hear that feedback. There's a few things I can say about that. So I suppose one thing is about the content and the value of what you're sharing. So really do have something to say, have something to share, have something that you want people to go home with that they can action, you know, whether that's as simple as putting something that surprises and delights themselves and those around them, putting something on the table. Some of the most meaningful feedback I've had following cooking classes is things along the lines of, you know, I've been cooking for my husband for 20 years and this is the first time he told me gee, love, that was delicious. And, you know, you kind of think, oh, my goodness, that's terrible, but that's also fantastic. So I suppose to be part of that transformation for somebody is, you know, a real privilege. So it's about having that content that really can make those transformations for people, whatever they might be, whatever your field is. So, yeah, sink into the value of what it is you want to say, what you want to share and present. I guess as a presenter, there's no stage Danny and off stage Danny it's just me so I think I try to just be myself and be authentic in whatever I do sometimes that means showing vulnerability so I've spilt things dropped things cracked eggs whether I shouldn't have cracked an egg in cooking classes I even got (laughs) the best one was when the fire brigade came (laughs) there was no fire but there was smoke and the smoke alarm was very enthusiastic so I guess it's about just being yourself because people relate to people and I'm not some entity up there somewhere and I suppose because I'm trying to share how doable I think everything is then there's no point in seeming unattainable or you know so glossy that trouble just slides off me. So it's about being real and it's about being personal and I'll share, you know, personal stories about my family or whatever's brought me to this dish, the mean comments my kids made when I was developing recipes for my latest cookbook or whatever it might be. And I suppose then in a really practical sense, so you've got your content worked out, you, you're sinking into yourself and you're just being yourself, but then it can be difficult to get into that moment of being with the audience. So sometimes I might pick a person in the audience that looks super friendly and open and just not look at them all the time, but just have perhaps glance past them every now and again and just have that positive energy and that openness just like beaming into me. And sometimes you might be on a stage and you can't see everybody, but you could imagine that person. So then it's about imagining that friendly, open, interested, engaged audience member that you feel is really listening and really is going to benefit from what you're saying or what you're doing and present to them. And I think once you've got that one person, it's circular, isn't it? It's like presenting and being in front of an audience. It's like, you know, the energy flows. So I think once you act like someone's friendly, engaged, interested and open and benefiting, then you can project that and more people will open up into that space. So I guess it's just you build together with an audience. Yeah, I like that. And when you talked about finding one person who you think 
looks warm and engaging. That's something I always do as well when I'm on stage. It's who, and I might find maybe two or three people depending on how big the room is. And often the rooms I'm in are bigger than the ones you're in just by the nature of the work I do and the work you do. And it's really helpful just to have somebody who you can make eye contact with because the whole room notices that. And the whole room notices that you are just staring straight ahead into a void when you're presenting. And that definitely adds to the warmth and the engagement that you want to portray during the presentation. You're really there. I would also say I do that in videos as well. So I make a lot of cooking videos and early on, like perhaps not so much these days, these days I just feel like talking to my audience, but early on I really felt like I was talking to, and I had a particular person in mind that was a fan and really loved what I did, and I just felt like I was presenting to her, and that really helped me to get beyond the camera and this whole idea that I was making a video, and I was just chatting to Steph. Yeah, and I think when you said just be yourself, your normal self, that really comes across because one of the things I love about you is that it doesn't matter how we've met or where we've been or what we've been doing, you're you in every interaction that we've had, whether it's been through email or through phone or through sitting across the table having a meal together or me in the audience of an event that you're doing, you always get the same thing. You get the same laugh, you get the same smile, you get sometimes similar jokes, you get this warmth that comes out that can't be hidden or can't be faked. And I think people respond to that. Thank you. Yeah, it's nice to hear you say that. And hopefully they're just similar jokes and not all the same jokes. Not the same. But (laughs) (laughs) maybe I'm not very skilled at being other people. It's easiest for me to be me. So I guess that's what I do. Yeah, and I think that's the sign of true leadership is being you, regardless of what the situation is. I like that. Um, You've interviewed hundreds of people in your career. Do you have a favourite or a least favourite? in terms of maybe the interview and the person, because they might be different. My least favourite would be the celebrity interviews that are very mediated. There's things you're not supposed to talk about. The time is very short. I think they're the hardest. One example might be, I don't know, like a pop star, let's say Danny Minogue, you know, maybe 10 years ago when she was at the top of the charts. And I had 15 minutes. She was in the middle of 10 photo shoots, she was pretty disengaged. I was just one of an endless parade of journalists and there just was she just wasn't giving me much. The reason I don't like that is I can see it from her side, it's whatever, but from my side it just makes it hard to write stories. But, you know, there's an art to writing those stories as well and sometimes it's about talking about the experience of the interview and I think that's what I did in that case where I ended up talking to a lot of her fans and trying to round out a picture by talking to a lot of other people and it was a super fun story to write. So those ones are tricky, kind of dumb, because that whole celebrity world can have lots of elements of dumbness, but they're an interesting challenge as a writer, so I still get something out of them. It must be really hard as the celebrity as well to do interview after interview after interview where you're asked the same unimaginative questions all the time. And I wonder how many celebrities get asked something that's really unique Yeah, it's a tricky one because (laughs) it's like you can ask the weird question like, I don't know what it would be. What did you have for breakfast? Or I don't know. But it's you don't know if you're going to get what you need for a story. You know, like random info might be handy for a quiz, but are you going to be able to build a story around it? And when you do have those really short time periods, you've got to have the story in mind and get value out of the limited time. And sometimes that 
unfortunately means covering off the boring yeah. stuff. It's a tricky one. So I, I, I sort of feel for those people, but, yeah, at the same time. Hard. Yeah. Just front up. That's part of the job. So probably my favourite, and there's so many great people I've interviewed and honestly consider it such a privilege to sit down with someone and my purpose is to be nosy and ask lots of questions. It's just like how good is that? But the I don't get starstruck. I'm not really a celebrity kind of person, but I was absolutely so uh, just could hardly bear it when I interviewed Andy Thomas, the Australian astronaut. Oh. It was um, a little out of my usual arena, but I was so excited to do a profile on him. He'd done a spacewalk. I felt like I, I was like, I'm looking at a man who's been to space. And I was asking really dorky questions like, have you got anything with you today, Andy, that has been into space? And he was like, oh, well, I think these sunglasses actually. And I was like, oh, wow, your sunglasses, hey? <laughs> so it was a pretty excruciating interview to listen back to where I was just really like this little girl like fawning at the knees of this um, incredible scientist. He is not the name I expected you to give, not even – Close no. to the name I expected you to give. <laughs> <laughs> That's so funny. Did you think I was going to say Yotamata Lange? Yeah, or Jamie Oliver or yeah, someone like that. Yeah, every interview, except for the few that aren't, every interview is great. But I think my favourite ones are probably non-celeb ones because as you sort of pointing to before, it's like they haven't been asked all the questions before and it is more of an art, I suppose, to create that circle of trust where someone's willing to share with you something that they perhaps haven't shared before. Or even sometimes it's really rewarding as an interviewer if you ask somebody something and they're like, oh, right, I never thought of it like that. And then they're off on a new tangent and you're sort of coming back to the idea of connection. It's like helping people make connections in their own life or or perhaps if, say, it's like a chef or a restaurateur, you know, maybe you're asking them questions that help them see the place of their restaurant in the city and, you know, what it's brought to the destination. I think that's really rewarding as well. Yeah, I like that. Are there any upcoming food trends that you can point us in the direction of? Yeah, food. It's such a fatty kind of space, isn't it, these days? There's always a next it ingredient and all that sort of stuff. I'm not so into that stuff. So I'll talk about this in two ways. As far as like the actual trends in terms of marketing, I think the biggest thing that's going on at the moment is this whole concept of free from. Yeah. So it's it's these categories where foods that are free from whatever. So they're free from gluten, they're free from sugar, they're free from fat, they're free from dairy. Free from taste. Well, you know, often, often those things go together. Obviously, a lot of people are dealing with issues with um, things they're trying to avoid in their diets. And that, of course, is completely reasonable. And it's great for manufacturers to give people simple ways to be able to safely avoid those ingredients. The problem that occurs is that what manufacturers do from a point of ease is they make one product line that is the free from line. So these products end up being free from all those things. They're free from gluten, they're free from sugar, they're free from dairy, they're free from whatever. Then it's like, well, if they're free from all these things, what's actually in Mm -hmm. them? And what is actually in them is a lot of junk. They're foods with a lot of different ingredients and you need to do a lot to food that's free from a lot of the things that give food their body and their flavor. So you need to add a whole bunch of other stuff. So it's unfortunate that someone, because of manufacturers' efficiencies, the food just ends up being free of everything and full of a whole lot of a whole lot of stuff that's probably not that great for you. And it's quite different if it's free of one thing. So if it's free of dairy and only free of dairy or free of gluten and only free of gluten, 
it's quite a different process, I would imagine, than taking everything out of that one ingredient. Yeah, it's really different. And it's a technical challenge for a food manufacturer. And it just means that they're covering off all those categories. So that's big tick from them. And people love seeing all those ticks on the products, salt-free, sugar-free, fat-free, whatever. But then it's like, okay, what is this actually made of? Is it still food? So that's a big marketing trend. But I would say a trend that I can more get on board with is, and it's something that I do think is very powerful among consumers more and more, is the whole idea of knowing what your food is and where it comes from. So it's almost counter to this, this other marketing trend. I think people are getting really much more interested in where their ingredients come from and having authentic connections to that. Because of, you know, the lives that most of us lead in cities, not growing food, we don't have an authentic connection to food in the sense of growing it and picking it and nurturing it. We don't have that. But I think people are really open to hearing stories about the produce, about feeling connected to producers in different ways, whether that's um, being able to read about them or being able to scan a product and the story pops up about the farmer. So that technology sort of is on the way and becoming more pervasive. We'll see a lot more of that. So I think it's these different ways. Again, it's, again, Mel, you're so onto it because it's all about connection. Yeah. It's about just how can we connect authentically with what we're putting into our bodies, given that we are not living in a time, for the most part, where we have a veggie plot that we are getting our food from. Yeah, I like that. Are there any particular foods that you love to eat and or cook? <laughs> oh, my goodness. I just love it all. One of the things I'm really into at the moment is meals that I just build around one vegetable. Let's just say I'm going to cook for dinner tonight. It's going to be really simple. It's just based around sweet potatoes. So I'm just going to chop up some sweet potatoes, leave the skin on, and I'm going to sprinkle some sort of homemade curry powder over them. And I'm going to roast them with like a chopped up onion and some cherry tomatoes and a bit of olive oil and a bit of salt. And then I'm just going to toss them around with some maybe some brown rice or some lentils, chop in a few herbs, and that's going to be dinner. What time should I turn up? <laughs> yeah, get on the plane, mate. <laughs> I'm in Melbourne in a few weeks, I'll let you know. <laughs> oh, well, I might not have those leftovers, but I'll have something. That's all right. There'll be something delicious, I'm sure. Is there anything that when you eat out and you see it on a menu that you automatically think I have to have that? Well, it's generally the thing that I feel is going to express the restaurant the best. So when I go to a restaurant to review, it's always about giving the restaurant the opportunity to shine. So it's about trying to perceive what the restaurant is trying to be and then trying to eat the food that is most expressive of that. Sometimes restaurants will have food on the menu that they sort of just have to cover off because not everyone's going to eat the food that they feel is really them, but I will try to find the food that I think is really them. There's an Israeli cafe that I'm desperate to go to and I know they're super proud of their hummus and all the things that they put with it. So I'm going to have like three different types of hummus and just have a little hummus bath. You'll have to message me the name of that place. Okay, I will. And what about when you're going out with your family? Is there any, do you order the same thing off the menu of the same place that you go to or do you try new things or is there a particular style of food that you always, you know, gravitate towards? We always try to try new things. One of the factors of life as a restaurant critic is you don't tend to have favorite restaurants because I'm always going to the next restaurant. So I suppose the big treat for me is to go back to a restaurant that I've loved and just to sink into that comfort. So if we just wanted to go somewhere 
just to eat for fun. Maybe it would be Italian and maybe it would be some just kind of yummy pasta. But I'm pretty open. Like I'm, we're so lucky in Australia. We really eat with such variety and it's not the same in a lot of countries. Countries built on waves and waves of immigration like Australia, we just do have such a variety. You know, we have Mexican tonight and Japanese for lunch and in a curry the next night and then Italian and then a barbecue. And it's it's not like that everywhere. You know, it's not like mm. that in France or Italy or Spain. Even in parts of the US, I'll never forget going to a food bloggers conference in San Francisco in October a few years ago. And part of the conference was a tour of the amazing ferry markets in the San Francisco Bay. And there were fresh farmers markets with the most divine produce you've ever seen. And there were a couple of women there from around Philadelphia and they were marvelling at the size of the vegetables because they said, we don't get carrots this size in Pennsylvania. We don't get capsicum big in Pennsylvania because the growing season was so much shorter than in California, but also because the ground was frozen for six months of the year, the carrot actually couldn't push its way down to grow long enough. Oh, that's so interesting. Really interesting. And it just, it really made me think about food in all parts of the world, including in Western countries where you'd think it would be the same, but it's not. No, food is hyper-local. Yeah, it is. It is. But it had never really hit me with such a degree of intensity as that conversation did. Yeah, that's really interesting. Yeah. One of the questions that I love, and you've answered a little bit of this, but is there a book or a podcast that's really impacted you? Well, at the moment, I'm starting every day by listening to this podcast called 7am. And it's put out by the company that does the monthly magazine, a current affairs magazine and the Saturday paper, which is a newspaper that comes out every Saturday. And what that is, it's just a 15 minute sort of behind the news podcast that I feel helps me stay up to date with what's happening in the world and have a little bit of an angle on it. It could be anything like something about politics, something about the environment, some sort of behind the news story that you just didn't know you should be interested in, but it's fascinating. It's a new podcast and I'm really enjoying that. Hmm, Thanks. I'll put that in the show notes for other people to get a sense of it as well. Are you reading anything now? Yeah, I'm loving a book by an old mate of mine from my Lonely Planet travel author days. His name's Alex Landrigan and his book is called Crossings. And it's a brilliant, clever book that you can read in two different ways. So a little bit of a choose your own adventure kind of vibe. And it's based on this idea that if you look long enough into somebody else's eyes, you can swap souls. Oh. And then you can swap back. Oh. So it's actually not a bad note to finish on, Mel, because it's so about connection. It's like they swap souls and then they just have a little look around in the other person's soul and they can sort of ask them questions and understand their language and all this sort of stuff. And then they hop back and it's really, really beautiful. That's the premise of the book. And then it just goes off on a big adventure. So we didn't even touch on your Lonely Planet days. So for everybody who's wondering or thinking how amazing is Danny, she used to be a writer for Lonely Planet, which when I was in my early 20s was my dream job, having since found out what the harsh reality of it was like from you and from a couple of other people. I'm glad I didn't do it, but we might have to get you back to talk about that some other time. 
yeah, plenty of fun tales. And yeah. yeah, look, it had its challenges, but it was brilliant. I'm so lucky to have done that. Yeah, it would have been amazing. Thank you so much. Where can people find you if they want to know more? Oh, well, I would love your listeners to hang out with me on Instagram at Danny Valant or on Twitter, also at Danny Valant, or come and visit me on my website, which is dannyvalant.com. And one of the things you'll find on my website at the moment is a new event series that I've recently launched. It's called Signature Dish Series. I've started it in Melbourne, but I'll roll it out nationally as time goes on. And what these events are is a behind-the-scenes experience in a top restaurant. It's not so much a meal, but you get a couple of hours in the restaurant kitchen when the restaurant is closed to the public. You get to hang out with the chef. The chef cooks a signature dish. You get to eat it. You get to learn all about it. You get to have a wine tasting as well and some snacks. And you go home with a recipe, a key ingredient for that dish so you can make the chef's signature dish at home and you're just much more equipped as a cook and also as a diner who's um, you know informed about the way great chefs come up with their dishes and the way the way great restaurants work I'm so excited about this concept because it allows me to use my connections with great chefs and restaurants to bring people into them to connect with these chefs and restaurants in a different way that sounds fantastic. I'll definitely try and get down to Melbourne for one of those and look forward to them coming up to Brisbane at some stage. Yes. And just also, Danny has an online membership course that you can sign up to through dannyvalent.com where you can watch her making lots of delectable things in her Thermomix. And she's written a few Thermomix cookbooks. So if anybody that does have a Thermomix, check out her cookbooks if you haven't because they are fantastic and she makes the complicated seem easy because it is <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's it it's doable yeah that's why I love videos because you can just show someone it's like look if I can do it you can do it exactly. so yeah it's, it's a very powerful way to prove it exactly so I need to end up by asking what are you having for lunch today well I'm actually going to have a late breakfast for lunch because I haven't been very organised this morning. So it'll be some kind of birch and muesli-ish thing that I'll top up with some blueberries, I think. Yum. I had breakfast at 5.30 and it's now 10.30 and I'm starving. I'm surprised you don't hear my stomach rumbling. (laughs) (laughs) Is that what that sound was? Yeah, pretty much. (laughs) I'm joking. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Hopefully we'll catch up and have a big hug and share some food together in the not too distant well i feel like this conversation's been a big long hug as well so thank you so much for having me see you soon bye see ya well that's it for this episode thank you so much for listening if you liked what you heard please hit subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes And if you really liked what you heard, please leave me a review on iTunes or a recommendation on LinkedIn, or both. The show notes are all on the website, melkettle.com forward slash podcast. And I'd love you to connect with me on LinkedIn or Twitter. You'll find me at Mel Kettle. See you next time and stay connected. Bye. Bye.